Continuing our annual survey of the year's worst movies, we arrive now at a category that gives us a heavy heart. We call it Directors Without Direction. These are bad movies by directors who have been good before and will no doubt be good again, but were not good this time. My choice is Paul Verhoeven's Starship Troopers. Verhoeven's credits include Robocop and Total Recall, but he lost his way this time with a repetitious shooting gallery of a picture in which alien insects are machine gunned for what seems like hours and hours on end. This is In The Cut, and hello, I'm Jesse. I am joined today after a one-episode hiatus by Aaron. Hi, Aaron. Hello. And we are joined for the first time by Jacob Henderson. Hi, Jacob. Hello. Jacob suggested Starship Troopers, and I thought it was pretty much a perfect movie for the format that we have here. <laughs> there's there's very few movies of the era that I think hold up as well as Starship Troopers seems to have. And I, going into it, going into this viewing, I had no idea whether it was going to or not. And two, the two things I was blown away by was, uh, one, how completely convincing it still seemed visually. I mean, you know, some give, you know, some consideration given to the era that it was made in, but really, really, like, mind-blowingly good for the era um, and the other is the sheer quantity, really. I mean, there's there there's hours. I, I would say, yeah, probably over 200 shots with, you know, significant. Yeah, I, I actually looked it up. Um, so it was um, a total of 600 shots. Wow. Visual effects shots. <laughs> it's just it's just incredible. And and it's it's it made in an era where you you that doesn't just mean 600 scenes composed entirely in CG. It's every scene is um, a mixture of practical effects, sure. multi-layered chroma keying, and there's there's plenty that I knew can immediately recognize as CG when I see it. But there's other stuff where I'm like, I'm not actually sure how that shot was made given the tools of the time. Did you guys have that? And, and it's it's so mixed in a way that no one does anymore. Mm. Um, in terms of uh, really building out. Uh, the the practical effects and really ha having those in the shot, um, just you know, CG is so easy now. There were some show offy yeah. shots where it was like a a shot of a computer rendered bug, and then a whip pan to a guy, and then a whip pan back to a close up of the bug that wasn't CG. But you could tell mm -hmm. that it was so like only because I sort of have gained an eye for it, would I even know that there was a distinction between the two because they were blended really, really well and meant to inhabit one continuous shot with some, you know, fakery, obviously, but really, really impressive work, I thought. Mm -hmm. And it just, it makes things seem so much more visceral if you, you know, have an actor actually getting hit with that big, weird foam leg. <laughs> uh. <laughs> right, or getting picked up by that giant, like, mechanical construction of the jaws that literally pick up his body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, which I, I think is something that we have definitely lost in most, uh, you know, action films now. I just, or two weeks ago, remembered the name of the VFX director and now have forgotten it again. Are you about Phil Tippett? Phil Tippett, mm -hmm. yes. A guy with a hell of a resume. He, um, he kickstarted his own little stop-motion animated uh, Mad God. That's what Phil yeah. Tippett's Mad God. Oh, I didn't know that that was ever actually made. It's part one is made and out, and then 
yeah, it's it's uh, it's just what you want it to be. <laughs> but I mean, he's like the legendary stop motion guy, and the fact that he was also, I mean, so influential, and um, you know, he also did. Uh, you know, a ton of the work in, in Jurassic Park. Yeah. Right. To kind of put things into perspective, um, Jurassic Park uh, only had about 50 visual effects shots. Hmm. It came out a few years prior, but that was kind of the benchmark of the time. Like, everybody was like, yeah, Jurassic Park, that that is the go-to movie when you're talking about um, CG um, creatures moving around. And another one that totally holds up. Yes. I think budget aside, <laughs> the, the budgets for both of those films... Uh, Starship Troopers and Jurassic Park were pretty pretty large, but budgets aside, um, the the craft that went into these films, they they really understood the limitations of the technology at the time and were able to utilize it. I think the the sequels um, for Starship Troopers they they had a, just a small fraction of the budget, but at the same time, um, a lot of the artists didn't have to go through the research stage where they were defining like how these how these creatures would move or how um yeah how yeah basically how they would look how they would move kind of the, the behaviors in body language one, one interesting thing about the bugs in starship troopers is they only have four legs uh, instead of eight and part of that was for practical reasons because um having half the legs means half the amount of uh, animation that needs to be done i think that it's really apt to say that Phil Tippett's background in kind of the f- the physical act of uh, molding and sculpture and the, like designing characters with it, with a sense of physicality to them is really part of what carries over and makes the creatures even when computer rendered work really well. And I and I think back to um, like what Ray Harryhausen really brought to stop motion animation, and he wasn't obviously wasn't the first person to ever put stop motion animation on film. But he, anything I had ever seen of stop motion before Ray Harryhausen was, it looked, the the characters or whatever was being animated looked first and foremost like a piece of clay in the shape of what was moving. And Ray not only brought an insane, you know, uh, obsessive dedication to the craft and the, and the minutia and the kind of like incredible detail and incredible hundreds of hours of work he would put into a single shot, but also that he always like, like thought ahead to understand, okay, so if this is what the creature's shape is, what is its skeletal structure like? What's its musculature right? Like if it moves in this way, what muscles would have to be contracting and then bulging under the skin? How does muscle move underneath skin? Like things that no one had ever considered before and that, that he did and brought a huge, huge amount of life to his creations. And I think you could probably say similarly that something that in the early days of CG, it's just was, you know, in the same way that the early days of stop motion with clay, it was just considered a clay shape. Early days of CG, it's just kind of like a computer generated shape of polygons and that you're not automatically forced to consider the inner workings and musculature and physicality and different weights of different parts of the bodies and stuff that really infuse it with the life. And that's why it's really cool to see someone who's, vested in the in the physicality of stop motion bring a lot of that mentality to to cg mm-hmm. yeah i think uh, i mean you just hit i mean so many of the just keywords that you think of when rig when when doing this that kind of work when hmm. when rigging a character it's like what you know how how do you weight a joint where you know where where all that 
uh, physicality is. And yeah, I was thinking when Jacob said, you know, they, that these are these really interestingly shaped things that with the four legs and they really have to move in kind of a unique way. There's not quite an actual analogous thing that you can look at and get a reference from. It's that's a good point. They don't, I mean, a, a creature of this type of shape, even like roughly doesn't, I can't think of an example from nature of something that, that physically works like this. And they move right. Yeah. In, in the movie, they, they move really well. And, and I think having someone that, yeah, coming from that you know, stop motion background get gets a lot of gets a lot of that, and I'm sure. I mean, just this is this is a movie that I just imagine must have invented so much of the pipeline behind a, a lot of this slightly automated stuff. Hmm. And 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 I, I I may have my chronology off, but you know, Massive didn't exist. I think Massive is was built for Lord of the Rings. Uh, Lord of the Rings, yeah. You know, there's no Houdini. There's no, I mean, so I think, you know, all the swarm stuff, like there was shots with a couple of a hundred things moving independently. And that's, you know, obviously not being hand animated. And it's, and the fact that they basically, for the most part, for, you know, 90% of the effect shots are only working with a single model is kind of a great cheat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you know it's 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 not like in Lord of the Rings where they have you know I I don't know how they vary up their randomized crazy randomized models. So so basically just just having the the single model it, it's a lot less to worry about, but they they can build out these giant crowd shots. Yeah, I mean for the times, uh, amazingly, like if you look, when was like um, Episode One, Star Wars Episode One? I don't, I don't, I, I'm not familiar with that movie. <laughs> but that was roughly the same time, right? It's episode one, The Phantom Menace is 99, and this was 97, I think. Okay. Yeah, 97. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the, the Star Wars prequels are, you know, something I think of as, and in a way, having uh, hugely impressive CG scenes of, you know, just thousands and thousands of things being rendered all at once. But it's all, it's just, no, nothing moves right. There's, there's no swarm behavior. There's no... Yeah, well, they, I mean, they were building this technology at the time that they were making the movie, basically. Um, I mean, so, some aspects of it existed from, like, Jurassic Park, and they were kind of refining what they, the infrastructure that they built for Jurassic Park. But they're working with a, a set of constraints to make this film, and these these artists, they, they know exactly what, what limitations the technology holds. And I feel like... When the sequels came out, the artists didn't have to hit these like road bumps. And uh, boy, I'm getting off topic talking about the sequels. Dang well, it! Were, were the sequels <laughs> made a lot later? I mean, I don't, I'm not I'm really not familiar with them at all. So they, I don't remember what years, but you know, there's something about having those constraints while you're making it, and decisions being made that reflect how the first movie was made. But then the the sequels kind of feel like they're kind of emulated in a way, you know? Mm. Um, so I, I kind of feel like, although the, the compositing work in Starship Troopers two was pretty good for the most part, there, there's a couple scenes that, um, kind of fall apart, but, um, especially for like the budget, the, it, it was just a small fraction of the, the budget of Starship Troopers one. But, um, since the animators kind of didn't have these obstacles while they're developing the technology, they kind of take things for granted and, uh, boy, maybe maybe that's kind of a harsh thing to say. Um, maybe we should. <laughs> just... you say that they already have, you know, the assets and the pipeline are there. You can just put them in and put them in anywhere, <laughs> right? Um, without. Uh, and, I mean, they 
I do want I do want to make sure that you know that uh, everyone who worked on Starship Troopers Two is a listener to the show. So to be really careful, Jesse. They know what they did. <laughs> I I mean I don't want to sound like harsh or anything. It's, I mean there were some really good shots, um, but the the movie was pretty pretty bad. I, I I think it's I think it's it's broadly applicable to say to that uh, a lot of amazing creative work in every you know, form, every art form comes from working and understanding limitations. And and I think that looking back at an area where CG wasn't just like a blank check to put whatever you wanted on the screen when it was still had, you know, its own inbuilt limitations, you can see some creative problem solving there that you wouldn't see today, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, I mean, the creature design in this movie is based around what does CG do really well? Right. And and I was thinking that when I was when I was talking about like musculature and like, you know, you think of these really expensive things to do like hair or skin or things like that. And these creatures are designed to have like hard carapaces. But that really, really fits the the what the strengths of the tools available. Right. And um, and just the shaders they use, which is I mean, this kind of fade between a shininess and a matteness that just. Just, just a ton of things that are like, what is the thing that is just looks absolutely the best um, that 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 you can do? And they just, you know, t- took all the best things and um, copied a thousand of them, <laughs> and uh, that looks that looked fucking great. Um, it was also interesting um, to look at uh, the lighting and uh, how how lighting was used. And I, I feel like the the model of the main bug was really based around being lit in those big climactic shots. Sure. Hmm. You know, that's a good point. Um, a lot of like creature films up to that point were typically shot at night, so you could hide a lot of stuff, but a lot of these the scenes in this movie were shot during the day, uh, specifically that shot where all the bugs are coming down the, the uh, valley there, and like the thousands of bugs. That, that was a daytime shot. They're, they're almost never shot at night. That, that was something that really jumped out at me. A, a, a movie made, you know, before or after this, it seems like most of these shots would have taken place at night, but this movie... C- CG looks so much better in the dark. By shooting all these shots during the day, it seems like they're sort of doing it the hard way, but it's also just fits to the style of the movie that they're going for. And the, the visual uh, impression... That, that it can leave you with is is not that it's like they're you know chittering away like swarms of bugs mm-hmm. in the middle of the night like maybe aliens sort of <laughs> uh tries to draw on that type of motif but they're just like they're bugs it, <laughs> i don't know it, it, it reminds me more of like coming across an anthill uh, during recess more like you you this is a whole society this is their planet this is their universe they're not just there to jump out of the shadows this is actually like an entire species that goes about their day (laughs) and it could i mean it could have looked so bad trying to do that Mm -hmm. i feel like so much of why jurassic park holds up is you know that choice to pretty much all of the impressive shots are shot at night and you can just basically you know go through and post and darken up any of the bits that don't quite look right there's no doing these you know broad daylight shots i mean there is plenty of like post-production you know dust and whatever being flung up but yeah um 
I I thought these creatures were gorgeous. I thought the art direction on I mean to 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 take a step even before the like amazing animation and techniques done to bring them to life. Uh I thought that the that your main bug was like really amazing and not like anything I'd seen in a movie before. And the movie kept kind of upping the ante and showing us new and even crazier like creatures and scenarios that I was really blown away by. I was really, really impressed, not just by the kind of the technical execution, but of the, you know, the designs of these monsters and the ships, too, I thought were held up really well. And they're, you know, not quite as mind blowingly awesomely designed as the creatures, but really just the whole all the art direction in this movie, I thought was was really mm-hmm. very good. I didn't love any of the ships. I thought that I, I liked the kind of the X-shaped jets on the back of their kind of main carrier ship that, uh, you know, what's her name? <laughs> yeah. Was commanding at the one point. Yeah. I, I liked one of they, the characters. This movie also had characters. It, <laughs> it's I liked that there was sort of a halo ring shaped uh, <laughs> space station that kind of encircled the moon, if I'm remembering correctly. <laughs> but f- far and away, the, the creature design, I thought, stole the show. So this movie also had characters. I guess, right? I mean, I remember Rico's name. Who else? Who else is in this movie? There was the the love interest, right? And the other love interest, and um, Michael Ironside, and motherfucking Michael Ironside. Yes, yeah. But I mean, it was definitely nine hundred two and zero in space, kind of going on. You know what? I, you know what I thought was uh, Saved by the Bell in space. <laughs> Whatever your particular. Teen drama. I say this is. It really felt a lot more Saved by the Bell, and it, I I really liked that. I mean, I, not having ever read the source material, who knows how like mature or fleshed out these characters okay. were. I mean, the 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 purpose of this movie wasn't, I don't think, to tell a gripping human story. It was to basically set a movie full of stock movie characters in a. Un, un like unrealized fascistic or fascistic but but i think it they it was very intentionally supposed to be these like hyper beautiful 20 something yeah just just kind of cheap archetypes right you know I, I think you're supposed to supposed to go into the movie thinking it's one kind of movie and have it be pulled away i don't know how well that actually worked i mean certainly none of the critics or audience of the movie felt like it worked. <laughs> or- <laughs> I think that's funny because I think that um, 
it, it, there's so much that 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 clicks when you realize what the movie is doing. Like I remember having seen this movie for the first time as a teenager in the theater, coming out and just being like, "That scene where the little kids are stomping on the cockroaches <laughs> is hilarious. It's like amazing, like subversive in a way I had never really seen in a movie because it kind of was taking the piss." out of itself it seemed like it was sort of like it, w- without realizing that the movie was actually kind of trying to make this grander point i was just like it's like the movie was making fun of itself for a second and i really liked that um all of those transitional scenes that are just like with the like click for more information on the news reels thing mm-hmm. I, that the, i thought that was uh very forward looking i mean that's basically the the like Doritos size snippets we get are, you know, news. I, I actually, uh, in a lot of ways, thought a lot of the tech and UI decisions were, you know, much less flashy than a lot of uh, what its contemporary, sure. what its contemporaries might have done, but much more prescient. Is that a word? I, it was the word I was looking for, yeah. Am I using real words still? Prescient might be how you say it. Prescient? Or it might be prescient. I don't know. I grew up reading books and not talking to human beings, so <laughs> I, I, I know lots of words and not how to pronounce any of them. I still do not talk to human beings, <laughs> and it may be showing. Um, I, I mean, I don't know. This is like this is a question for Jacob, I think, who who is like wants like is poised to go into business in this kind of like yeah. the the company that made those it was kind of a feat to to create those splash screens um so they, they had to render those at i think 2k resolution and there wasn't a whole lot of software out there that could like actually do that hmm. with, with with ease they, they used a lot of different fonts and everything too which mm-hmm. which um for the time I'm, I'm not sure how common it was to slap several different fonts on a graphic that was at 2k resolution <laughs> that's actually pretty fascinating yeah. that's um but then they also had um like fire elements and reflections in the um in the metal like bezels and everything um yeah typically when when you'd see like a computer screen it would still look like pixelated or or they'd just be using a crt but flashing a bunch of different things on right it. yeah um so this was like as though you the viewer were looking at these futuristic tvs and the tv has some sort of evolved internet built into it for the, for the time uh, <laughs> sort, uh, of, sort of, of yeah. it, maybe. it's funny i i loved the scenes where there was a cursor on the screen and it was controlled by the director and it was like he's just kind of like deciding what we're <laughs> interested in and what we're not right like what he clicks on more you know yeah. there, there were like snippets that it's like that's just background for the movie that's just like world building stuff and then there's parts that it's like this is actually meaningful to the development of the plot of the movie and so the cursor goes and clicks on more and then you see more about it and it's i i loved that it was like kind of the invisible hand of the director made visible for brief moments Mm -hmm. i really like that and uh this was written by the same writer as the first robocop right Right. And so you get this kind of, I mean, one of his, one of Verhoeven's signatures is these kind of like interstitial things and ads and that kind of like weird marketing intrusion slash world building thing he does so well. Right. Which is maybe not even Verhoeven's thing. Maybe it's, you know, I I wish I could pull the writer's name right now. Um, Uh, Edward Neumeyer. Yeah. 
Maybe this is Edward Newmeyer's signature. It could be. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, he directed the the third one, and it had campy uh, cutaways and everything. And that, <laughs> um, it's interesting. I didn't didn't quite make that connection. But I think it's something that the I mean the two of them probably do well together. And you know, he didn't write Total Recall, but Total Recall definitely had a couple inserts of like. Hmm cutesy future advertising that kind of like hints at a dystopian capitalism. <laughs> I, I, th- I thought that added so much to the brought a good understanding to the world of the movie. I mean, I, I don't think Starship Troopers would be Starship Troopers without all the like news breaks and interstitials and, you know, like rah, rah military you know, uh, yeah, reporting. I- when it, the, the hey guys, this is a satire uh, moments. <laughs> really, I, I mean, it it took up very little screen time. I think overall in the runtime of the movie, that that those little cutaways and and breaks and kind of scene bumpers. But they are, I remember them better than I remember a lot of the movie because I think that they were really uh, told uh, told a lot of story and also did a lot of world building in a very small amount of time, which I really like that he uses that type of seen that way as, as a teenager watching these films um it it really kind of tickled my teenage sensibilities when the news clips would come up and um it'd be totally unedited you know <laughs> there'd be like right. gore all over the place <laughs> same uh same with total recall that i mean that that's one thing that really stuck out in, in my memory yeah I, he has he has a way of using violence really really effectively and s- <laughs> maybe i could say thoughtfully really i i, th- I think that uh, deliberately i think is probably deliberately I, I saw an interview where he said that if he doesn't show the pain it it's meaningless it, it doesn't it's nothing but gratuitous right so he he really wants to show the the heaviness the weight of the gore and um i i really appreciate that actually <laughs> right i i think that you have to if, if you're going to tell a story that violence is a main part of the story you have to represent violence for what it is which is like unpleasant and miserable and has like far-reaching implications and repercussions and stuff (laughs) um this is something i just got done ranting about on the last episode i recorded which was about the robocop reboot which um (laughs) i thought had a lot of strengths and honestly like it wasn't the terrible movie that i kind of went in expecting but it was like robocop is a pg-13 movie which means that one of the overarching and amazing themes of RoboCop, which has to do with the violence and how it's presented, is completely like nullified by the fact that like there's no the same thing happened in the the Total Recall remake. Totally, it, exactly, and and you get to squeeze in all the fun of the violence and none of the consequences of the violence, yes. and that's what you do when you make a PG thirteen movie like that. And it's I think way way more dangerous to show a kid a bunch of violence with no repercussions than it is to show a kid a bunch of violence with repercussions. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I was going to say RoboCop 1 versus RoboCop 2 because sure. I haven't watched a <laughs> movie made in the last 10 years. <laughs> I've got kids now. I haven't seen a rated R film. <laughs> <laughs> so, Well, it's, I, I honestly think that PG-13 movies can be way more fucking insidious mm. because they... Oh, I, Absolutely. Like, they take yeah. away the consequence of violence, and they don't take away the violence. Yeah. Burial detail. Dismissed. That is. 
How are you, Carl? Carmen, good. Johnny, I'm sorry it had to be your unit on P. That mission had a very low survival probability. The bugs laid a trap for us, didn't they? Elegant proof of intelligence, isn't it? We thought there might be a brain bug on P. You knew and you sent them anyway? We couldn't afford to launch an operation if there wasn't one. You don't approve. Well, too bad. We're in this for the species, boys and girls. It's simple numbers. They have more. And every day, I have to make decisions that send hundreds of people like you to their deaths. Didn't they tell you, Colonel? That's what the mobile infantry's good for. I hope you're ready for more. Um, I don't know if you guys thought it was interesting rewatching the film. Um, Clancy Brown is in it, and he does the uh, the voice of Mr. Krabs in SpongeBob SquarePants. Who was he in the movie? Uh, he was the drill sergeant. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> who ends up being the guy hoisted on everybody's shoulders at the end of the yeah. movie and getting credit for pulling out the brain bug? Yeah. Yeah, and throwing the uh, knife in uh, Jake Busey, Jake Busey's hand. So, mm-hmm. um, also uh, a, a wonderfully terrifying character actor in many mm-hmm. things, and used really effectively uh, here. The, I the, the villain in the uh, HBO program Carnival. Hmm. Oh, I haven't seen it. One of the, I mean, I, I love the, I love the entire boot camp sequence because it's like, like we were talking about before. It's like Saved by the Bell goes to boot camp. But it's also like people's like get fucked up and broken and destroyed and bleed everywhere and die. <laughs> it's it's particularly like Saved by the Bell goes to Full Metal Jacket. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Didn't were, somebody from Saved by the Bell just get arrested for something? <laughs> <laughs> I saw a headline. I have to imagine. I haven't been following him as closely. <laughs> I, I like just out of the blue, like saw a, a headline on it. Um, I'm not. Hmm. Um, didn't read the article or anything. Like Saved by the Bell actor, well, like arrested. Um, I just should we lay odds on which actor the... it was? Hang on, you guys. Because <laughs> Screech I is, I mean, to... where my mind goes, but it could be Slater. <laughs> it's. I I just have to I'll let you guys Zach. know. I bet it's Zach. I have... that was driving on coke. Zach. Wait, you guys. Zach. I just too have much to coke, let you know. Poker in the passenger seat. That's my official guess. I feel like I'm playing a game of Clue. <laughs> I did go to a party where we watched the um, Screech sex tape. <laughs> Which is a thing that there is. Huh. Okay. Well, one, one of the saddest pieces of pornography available. <laughs> That's kind of saying something because there's probably... I mean, Much I sadder say- pieces of pornography. I'm just a little sheltered. <laughs> He had tr- Anyway. Hi. Uh, maybe the most interesting conversation to have about this movie is where it diverges from the book. What people's reaction to that is um, okay. on the internet, where people love to have this argument. What the politics behind that mean. Um, where the satire is pointed. Right. I'm not sure I'm ready to have any of these conversations, <laughs> but I think they're good ones. I think so, too. And I think this is the the part of the conversation that I feel a little underprepared for. But I, I, I think 
So kind of the the story of this movie, right? Like if you walk up to someone who is like, you know, passingly familiar with Starship Troopers and ask them like, you know, what's what's the deal with that movie? They might say there was a book that came out and it was pretty raw, raw military. And then a movie was made by Paul Verhoeven, who's kind of a satirist. Uh, in how he makes movies, and it kind of took the book to task a little bit, and kind of took the piss out of the book by showing like how fascist these ideas are of a military-run society, of a society where military service is a prerequisite for citizenship, and made it put these things really on the surface, and then that movie gets released, and then everybody who watches it doesn't get it, and thinks it's like a dumb action movie, and either loves it or hates it based on that single metric. I mean, I think I think that that's kind of like the for the sci-fi geek in the world. That's kind of like the nutshell of what Starship Troopers is. Do you, does that sound right? Well, I, I would say honestly, more than that, you'll get the conversation about why no awesome robot suits. <laughs> we wanted a movie with awesome robot suits. The book had awesome robot suits. The, in fact, the book kind of pioneered the idea of of, uh, of, of, uh, of the awesome robot mercenary suit. force with an awesome robot suit. Yeah, and interestingly enough, the book Forever War or the the Forever War. Yeah, Joe Haldeman. Is, is, yeah, yeah, it's is getting a movie treatment right now. Is it which, really? Yeah, and that was a book that was kind of a direct response, right. maybe not to Starship Troopers, but to Heinlein in general and to. You know that just the to to military sci-fi, right? And I think we're gonna see our good nuclear dropship robot soldiers that everyone has wanted to see. Um, well, boy, it's the the Forever War is an interesting one because uh, I I was introduced to a book in my teens called Forever Peace, mm-hmm. which is uh, Joe Haldeman's uh, sequel or kind of not. It's not a direct it's sequel. A it's kind of a right. It's his follow up, and I, I read that book probably twenty times. And eventually got around to reading Forever War, and I didn't quite click with it as much. But in hindsight, you can really see how Forever War got track the traction that it did in being kind of the first post-Vietnam military sci-fi. And that it, it, there's there's so much more kind of like boots on the ground perspective than like rah rah military perspective. Is that? Am I off base there? No. And again, these are books that I'll read when I was 17. That right. I'm not going to have a lot of, a lot of insights. Yeah. And, and, and likewise, but I, I think that, I think that the, the lazy way of boiling it down, which I'm about to do is that, um, you know, Heinlein didn't see a war like Vietnam. He was, uh, I, I think he was involved with the Korean war, but never like boots on the ground involved. And, uh, Joe, I'm sure I'm saying his name wrong, but Joe Haldeman, author of uh, Forever War, was like spent a lot of time on the ground in Vietnam before he wrote the book. And so one, one one's kind of a top down perspective of war and one's kind of a bottom up perspective of war. Yeah. And I, I, I would be fascinated. I mean, this is the first time I'm hearing about Forever War being made into a movie, but I'd be fascinated about how what kind of treatment you give that movie today. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely going to be. You know, as as filtered through Iraq rather than as filtered through Vietnam, but um, but uh, you know, I also think that Starship Troopers, the novel. I mean, the interesting thing about it is when you're having that internet conversation. I think a lot of the people who are like Heinlein was a you know 
you know, fascist, militarist, whatever, probably haven't read the book. Because, hmm. you know, as much as it kind of was that, it was also, a, you know, he was a pretty progressive guy in a lot of ways. I, you know, I think the whole military's military service for citizenship thing was in part more an argument against the draft than anything else. Hmm. You know, he was someone that at least um, for his time and among his contemporaries was pretty good on gender, was pretty good on race. It was a big deal that in the book, uh, Rico uh, was Puerto Rican. Hmm. And it was kind of interesting that in the movie, he was this kind of white dude. Sure. I, I think the movie the movie had a different agenda, and I think it served the agenda way better that he was like a chisel-jawed Aryan guy. But an interesting thing about uh, the movie is that, you know, I think in the movie they did try and present the society as a good society to live in, hmm. and a lot of how they did that was showing it as being very explicitly non-sexist, non-racist hmm. world to live in. Kind of a social utopia, yeah. Yeah, and, and that's how they, Paul Verhoeven in the 90s, chose to present social utopia. Right. Young people from all over the globe are joining up to fight for the future. I'm doing my part. I'm doing my part. I'm doing my part. I'm doing my part, too. <laughs> They're doing their part. Are you? Join the mobile infantry and save the world. Service guarantees citizenship. I love that the uh, people that are middle-aged or older, like, have some sort of, like, limb-missing... <laughs> Or some sort of story to tell, you know, this new upcoming generation should probably learn a little bit from their mistakes. But mm. um, mm-hmm. there was the one scene, it was at the recruiting officer in the beginning, um, who's like, <laughs> yeah. the war made me who I am. And then there's just like a pan down to him, his <laughs> like bionic arm and no legs. Mm-hmm. There's there's so many little moments like that. Like um, there there's a, a dr- the dropships are coming into the bugs homeworld and... The, the guy is yelling at his troops, like, just remember your training and you'll get out of this alive. And then four or five seconds later, it's not immediate and it's not the same dropship, but just a random like like shot from the planet blows one completely up. And I'm like, what I really love about this is that it's obvious that that was kind of a, the one is a setup for the other. Like, obviously, just whatever, 100 people just died, and they're training had nothing to fucking do with it, right? Because war is cruel and miserable and chaotic. But that it wasn't, like, the guy saying it, and then all of a sudden his ship blows up. It's, like, never that on the nose. But you get a lot of moments that are just really super deliberate, like that, like the moment where he says, you know, being in the infantry made me who I am, and then you see his, you know, destroyed body, and you get a lot of satire in the first half to maybe two-thirds of the movie that I think is deftly handled in that it's never ambiguous or kind of like hedging. Like, it's always mm-hmm. pretty straightforward, but it's never so on the nose that it's like insulting. And I thought Robocop did that really well, too. I don't know. Was that your guys' experience with it? Is that it? It watching it today, you kind of have the idea, like, how could anybody miss that this was yeah. meant satirically? Yeah. <laughs> 
part, parts of it was pretty heavy. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the thing is, how many of the movies that were just totally straight, you know, could have just been read as satire? Mm. Thank God for you. All of you. You're all going to be heroes. Every last one of you. Close that hole. Sir. I had to evade capture. The security of the Federation was at stake. I have operational knowledge of what we're up to out here. Flores, I need that up quick. Working on it, sir. Damn it. See? They get in your mind. Look, they did it to Farley. They got in his mind. They make you do things. They made Farley call headquarters. The distress call was a trap. They're just like us. They want to know what makes us tick. They want to know us so they can kill us. Roughnecks, this is Lee. Prepare for attack. I repeat, we're going to be attacked. Where's the retrieval boat? Mayday, Mayday, this is Roughneck 2-0 to battle group. Do you read? Oh, God! We're going to die! Don't you understand? We're all going to die! Uh, Second squad, uh, me. Control yourself, General. So I don't know. There's a, there's a lot I think that works, and then there's a lot I think that um, is handled really with a surprisingly subtle touch for a movie that is so goes out of its way to be so on the nose. One of my big problems with District Nine, which is a movie I really really loved, is that they lay it on so thick that these alien creatures are like just human beings like you and me, except from another planet, and they keep showing these like loving like close-ups of their gigantic puppy dog wet eyes mm-hmm. and stuff and i'm like it just i don't <laughs> need to be handed the theme this much on a platter you know and w- contrast it to starship troopers where you only ever see like a decent shot of the bugs like eye for a split second and it, and it's when a group of four people are you know uh, of four of the soldiers are cresting the hill and they kind of gun one down and then there's one brief brief shot that's a tight shot of its eye and I'm like oh my god they have eyeballs and it's actually like like betrays like a real the humanity's the wrong word but you know what I mean like you actually kind of like right. f- for a split second understand a- empathy for that exactly and then like that of course is a like a exposure of weakness and so the angry dude like charges in with his gun and blasts it right in the eyeball area and then there's I mean the the moment where you really Kind of the climactic moment of the movie is, what does it feel? It's afraid. (laughs) It's afraid. It's afraid, and everybody cheers, right? It's afraid! Right, that's another moment that I I will never forget from my first viewing of the movie, was just like, that's such an amazing juxtaposition there, right? I love that. I love that. So, So I guess here's the question, is in the movie... Do we ever get a sense of whether or not the bugs are at all aggressors? Is is that is the asteroid that hit Buenos Aires? Do we have any reason to think that was actually sent by them? Well, the FedNet says it was. So. <laughs> <laughs> Um. <laughs> One thing we know from Paul Verhoeven movies is that you can always trust the media to give you the straight story, for sure. But but do we ever see an aggressive move by the bugs? It seemed kind of aggressive when they were, like, eating people and... <laughs> right, right. But people who landed on their planet and just started shooting them. Like, the the night before the big invasion, um, I, can't, I can't remember what the... 
newscaster said, but there's a guy like reporting on it and he's like, oh, here's a bunch of young kids that are ready to eat some bugs or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. He like kind of turns to the camera and he says, oh, some people say that this whole thing is a, po- a policy of non-intervention would have been. Yes. You know, if, yeah. If you don't provoke them, they wouldn't be defensive. Yeah, live, live and let live. Right. Yeah. That's all we really get. Yeah. For that theory, though, right? I mean, I, I mean, it's very deliberately put in the movie that that's that brought up in that way. Mm-hmm. But but is there? I mean, if we're going to treat this as a hard sci-fi piece, obviously these aliens haven't fired an asteroid across the galaxy to hit Earth. But <laughs> but within the movie's own universe, I, I like that it's ambiguous because I think that. What is meant to be, maybe in the book, asteroids are hitting the Earth that are being sent by the enemy species or something. I I, I don't know, or if that was a complete invention of the movie. But, you know, we never see on screen any means by which these inhabitants of this planet could be sending asteroids to crush parts of the Earth. But we it's also never made explicit that they're not doing it right i think that's deliberate i think that was a deliberate line that they were walking with it uh-huh. the the media you know they, they've got that giant array of weapons around the moon it's like they're preparing for some something from the bugs you know whether it be an asteroid that, that's actually one issue that i have with this movie is like okay so if the bugs are able to send um these meteors across the galaxy you know the suspension of disbelief with how our universe works. <laughs> how, how time and space <laughs> relate yeah. to one another. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, even just like having these large ships travel great distances across the galaxy within what seems like a few hours or whatever. Um, you know, there, there's no possible way that I, I could... Um, justify in my mind that the bugs are able to shoot their bug plasma. That's, and... I, I was going to say, I think that's the in-universe <laughs> reason given is bug plasma. Yeah. <laughs> bug plasma. Well, I, I think I think the movie um, 100% supports a reading that the Earth occasionally runs afoul of an asteroid that's destructive and externalizes the the reason for that because it doesn't want to accept that as like completely random happenstance and because there's asteroids around the bug planet humans have decided that the bugs are sending the asteroids and yet nothing in the movie literally supports that they're actually like uh aggressive acts by that species or or i think there's a a total read that humanity wants this planet and um Right, it's breathable atmosphere. It's obvious that they're, you know, yeah, but but that it's, you know, maybe it's some kind of false flag thing. Maybe it is a <laughs> an actual nine eleven thing where something just happens and then politicians take advantage of it to go uh, have military adventures where they would like. Right. Let's sum up. This year we explored the failure of democracy. Well, the social scientists brought our world to the brink of chaos. We talked about the veterans. How they took control and imposed the stability that has lasted for generations since. You know these facts, but have I taught you anything of value this year? Hmm? You, why are only citizens allowed to vote? It's a reward. What the Federation gives you for doing federal service. No. No. Something given has no value. 
Look, when you vote, you are exercising political authority. You're using force. And force, my friends, is violence. The supreme authority from which all other authority is derived. Something you mentioned real early in this conversation was that um, your read on how this movie is kind of constructed, like how it unfolds over the course of the movie, is that you go in expecting it to be one type of movie, and then the movie slowly reveals to you that it's another whole, a, a different thing entirely, right? And I think that one of the failures of this movie is that 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 may be a first watch experience for some people, but if if you really like look at how the plot unfolds in the movie and where these like key moments we've talked about happen to take place, it really is like one hour of really good kind of satire and then one hour of people gunning down bugs with really nothing else going on but the movie seems to kind of get it backwards in that like all of the interesting subversive like sarcastic cynical satire stuff all, all really seems to take place in the first you know hour and 15 minutes of the movie and the last five minutes of the movie and yet there's a big chunk in the climax of the movie where it unironically kind of revels in amazing special effects and heroics and so well, on and so well, forth. well, this movie is a hot mess. I mean, this is, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's another thing is like, this was not a well-made movie in a lot of ways, um, huh. but you, you are forgetting the third part of the movie, which it's at least a third of this movie is, spent not on satire and not on bug killing but it's been on which of these teenagers wants to fuck which other one of these teenagers <laughs> and uh space violins boy yes yeah, like space violins is a phrase i shouted at my girlfriend while we were watching this movie together they had a very special space violin they have this slow dance and then this sh- and then they're like looking into each other's eyes and then that third guy's face with the spiky blonde hair just squeezes in between them with his glowy violin he's playing do you mean jake Busey, gary Busey's said um i love the first scene where we learned that he played the violin because it was just it was just it was the letter from home yeah you know rico getting the letter from home and then it was totally uh-huh. playing like the ken burns civil war background <laughs> violin and you're like that's just fucking ridiculous that they would do that and then they show the guy actually playing the violin and it's like but it's actually like diegetic yeah it's like this is still ridiculous but yeah um, that, that character was really fun because he he starts out as like the asshole that you're he's gonna like <laughs> become buddies with the like he's the whatever there's Maverick in Top mm-hmm. Gun and then there's who Iceman is mm-hmm. the other guy and then they're friends by the end in this movie Iceman is just an asshole right away and then Maverick just likes him though and then <laughs> I, they become friends and then it turns out he plays violin and then it turns out he doesn't want to be the commander <laughs> and it's like they're just going every direction except the direction you expect with the guy I, it's pretty funny I mean one of my very favorite things in a movie is when when they set up set up a thing and subvert it within five seconds and they're like yeah oh here is you know it's the like the lunch counter scene and it's like oh he's met the guy that's gonna be his rival and and uh whatnot right so he's like i'm standing up to you because i'm rico the and he's like ah fuck it let's be friends yeah by the end of the scene he's like yeah he seems all right i don't know whatever fuck it (laughs) 
<laughs> you stood up to me. Let's be buddies. And the and and that the um the hard ass drill sergeant doesn't really end up having a heart of gold. He just is like an asshole, and he <laughs> fucks up physically, fucks up all of his people, <laughs> and then at the end, he's just celebrated as the hero arbitrarily, even though he hasn't done anything on screen that would make him heroic. Okay, so the casting of this movie. Yeah, I guess what you have a ma- main four characters and three characters. Who are you calling your main characters? But uh, I don't know. It was just Michael Ironside's movie to me. That's everyone else's <laughs> secondary. <laughs> well, I mean, that's what I'm going to say. Is all all of the secondary character actors are just fantastic. Yeah, and fun to watch. Very fun and well cast. And obviously, yeah. there's a casting director who is knows what they're doing. But then all of the leads are like. Who even knows who this guy is? He was probably a pretty guy from TV, and then there was a pretty lady from TV, and then there was uh, uh, Doogie Hauser, who I was not going to make the joke about how that guy was Doogie Hauser, but I legitimately forgot his name. Neil Patrick Harris. Neil Patrick I, um, Harris. I got to see him uh, at the Belasco in New York City play Hedwig on the stage performance of Hedwig and Angry Inch. That's fantastic. And it was extraordinary. And very different than his role in this movie. <laughs> we'll come back because I think the next episode you're going to hear audience member is uh, Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Awesome, but 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 I feel like the, the like bland prettiness of the core cast must have been very intentional. Right, I, I think it's incredibly deliberate. Yeah, I mean they they're. I mean, if, if they had made Rico a Puerto Rican guy, then I think it would have undermined kind of what they were going for, which is that it's just all this, like, hyper-generic, pretty boy, like, Amber Crummie and Fitch model characters, all of whose lines are basically just repeating rhetoric they've heard on the military-run TV propaganda machine that they've watched, right? And there's several <laughs> scenes in the movie where our hero Rico just all these, like... He's heroically and valorously shouting some inspirational thing that he had just heard earlier in the movie from another person who had just surely heard it from someone earlier in their military career. And and he, you know, he was promoted like every time somebody died around him, he was promoted. (laughs) You know, it's not necessarily that he did anything special or. And, And the first time I think it's like explicitly like. In, until you die or until I find someone better. Yeah. It's just like literally <laughs> right, you're the right. guy standing here. That's why you got your promotion. Right. And then they, they re, re, <laughs> come back uh, to it again. Yeah. Again, and especially in the first two thirds uh, or first half, really, uh, subversively hints constantly that these people are being fed a line of bullshit to inspire them to go out and kill on behalf of other people and who are ultimately nothing but meat in a grinder. And I think that the movie falls so in love with its own, like, fantastic ability to show this large-scale human-against-bugs machine gun fight that it kind of gets away from itself because it's having so much fun showing us these amazing scenes and battles. I mean, I... I do feel like this is not like an auteur-driven film where Paul Verhoeven is calling all the shots and actually, I think the studios or there was a a certain amount of 
hey, this is a fun summer movie. That's how we're going to sell it. Called for. Yeah, it it didn't get to be RoboCop. (laughs) Even RoboCop didn't quite live up to that, you know, in every moment or whatever. Sometimes it's like just a guilty pleasure. And I think this movie gets to be, I don't know. Like I I think that's like the biggest thing I grapple with, with this movie is that it gets to have it both ways. And I think a good movie can get to have it both ways, but I think the one is lost in service of the other for too long in this, in the last third of the movie. Right. Well, I mean, RoboCop wouldn't be RoboCop if it didn't have it both ways. That was totally kind of the the point of RoboCop. Let's just talk about RoboCop. Um, <laughs> Every single fucking episode of this podcast just turns into RoboCop anyway, so yeah. we might as well. Um, but you know, because I mean, RoboCop was fun as hell. He shot a man with his big gun, and the man's head exploded, and he was a robotic policeman, and. <laughs> You know, the bad guys did, they had bad drugs and they did bad things and you wanted to see their heads explode. (laughs) Um, it was great. There may have been other points to RoboCop. Who does? (laughs) Jacob, I'm worried I've been talking over you for too much during this. No, that's honestly, um, I told Aaron earlier, um, feels kind of like i'm just listening to a podcast so well can can you tell me what your experience was seeing this movie for the first time and how that compares to re-watching it more recently i don't know this movie to me it gets better as time goes on mm-hmm. <laughs> i mean the, the movie itself it's not the greatest film but like like i mentioned at the beginning um this this movie was kind of my introduction like it 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 really solidified my my interest in um how movies are made and visual effects i can remember um as a kid i was in my backyard hacking away at a chunk of wood i was trying to make uh movie props i was trying to make one of the 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 guns for uh, starship troopers and um i uh made um some of the armor it was made out of cardboard it was really cheese ball but um mm. i uh was planning on making kind of a spoof uh of it i i had a script and like storyboards many revisions of the storyboards i, I was like obsessed as a teenager like i i was convinced that i would make this film and uh i filmed like a, a really quick like maybe 20 second test for myself um, where I was running down the dirt road at my grandmother's house, uh, holding one of the, the Starship Troopers guns. And I, uh, rotoscoped this, um, one of the bugs that I had modeled in, in Lightwave and rigged in Lightwave. And I basically made it a short, kind of a proof of concept to see if I can actually do this on my own. But it, it was like the greatest thing for me. I, I was able to learn rotoscoping. I was able to learn how to rig, how to model, how to texture in 3D. And ultimately, I, I never did make make the short film that I wanted. Um, when was this? Was this this was right after the movie came out? Or this was I I was in high school at the time. Um, I think I was a junior when I actually filmed it. But um, leading up to it, I. I was basically teaching myself how to how to do all this yeah light wave the, the first couple of years where it's like oh my god you can do this on a computer <laughs> yeah i i mean i honestly i 
I owe this movie, like I like I mentioned earlier, was really what solidified my my love and interest for visual effects. Um, but I, I owe everything else to my father-in-law. Um, he uh, he introduced me to to um, Lightwave and like Adobe Premiere and Adobe After Effects, and it's just a really really cool thing, you know. Um, just trying to trying to figure out how all this stuff worked on my own. Yeah, I'll I'll see if I can dig up my my old animation. Um, mm. It I'm sure it's like looking back at it. I'm sure it's terrible, but um, like I was no, that would be fantastic. Though. <laughs> I would I, I would love to. That's far um, more ambitious than I think Aaron or I ever got at that age. Wait, I, I have a robot arm I made in Lightwave. <laughs> I think that I think that one of the. Um, one of the greatest things that a film can do is inspire people to want to make films themselves. And I think, I think that they invite you to kind of like analyze and scrutinize how these things were achieved. And in, in a lot of cases, a movie that's made even with less budget than Starship Troopers ends up being more impressive technically in part, because you can start to kind of see how they achieved what they, what they achieved and how much, you know, you, you start to appreciate how much work went into it, right? I mean, I, I think that today you see a lot of people who go to a movie and just say, like, well, they just do it all on computers now. As if doing it on computers meant you, like, said, hi, Siri, you know, make me a fleet of warships having a fight <laughs> or something. Right? Like, I, I, it, in a way that dismisses the entire, like, work and artisanship of it. And I think you, when you start to go further back and you see these these uh, uh, incredible movies that were so inspirational to us because we actually started to see physically how they would achieve the effects that they achieved and that, that, that we can come away from them inspired, whether it's inspired to make our own movies or just inspired to, like, pursue whatever you know creative interest we have um i think that's one of the highest callings a movie can one of the greatest things a movie can achieve is inspiring a generation of filmmakers right and i think that's um something that jacob has put into words very beautifully well i honestly i i kind of feel like at the time that starship troopers was made it was like what can we do with what we have now and with movies nowadays it's it's almost like okay what will we do um with this i'm not saying that there's not some new breakthrough um with the technology that we're currently using i mean the the effects nowadays are amazing but it just feels the constraints aren't limiting (laughs) well no one's pushing on the constraints because it really I mean, the the studio system and the uh, effects industry are so separate, and and it's and and just that there's a huge disconnect between between those two systems. It's not still a director working with a VFX guy in the same way that a director works with a cinematographer. <laughs> well, I mean, look at like James Cameron. He, I mean, he is obviously very involved with. Um, the visual effects process and uh, I mean, look at uh, Terminator 2 but I feel like he really understood the limitations of what was possible for the time and was able to, to utilize that attention on deck
for you new people, I only have one rule. Everyone fights, no one quits. If you don't do your job, I'll shoot you. You get me. We get you, sir! Welcome to the Roughnecks. Does it seem like Starship Troopers was a success as a film? I think largely, yes. I think that there's missed opportunities there. I, I, I wish that he was able to go for broke a little bit more on the satire and not have it sort of devolve two thirds of the way through into, into the movie it was sort of making fun of. But by and large, I, this rewatch of Starship Troopers was pure joy for me almost entirely. I I really, really liked it. I enjoyed the opportunity to revisit it. And I think it's shortcomings weren't because of a lack of ambition on the people making the movie, but just because they sort of had to make it the movie they were making fun of just to get it into theaters. And if I can forgive it for that, I think it's uh, an almost unimpunable movie. I really, really liked it. I'll impugn it. Um, okay. I think all, all the things that got it made made it awful. And it, not that it was <laughs> awful, but uh, it, it was a little awful. Well, uh, Jacob, can we can we get your your final take? Um, yeah, I mean, rewatching it, uh, I, it was a lot of fun. Um but um, as horrible as people may think the movie is, I saw it at the right time in my life that it it just really sparked my interest in filmmaking. And um, it's kind of my go-to film when I when I want to talk about visual effects and and everything. Um, so I really, really, really appreciate. Um jacob being able to come on this show and talk to us and bring us this movie that i thought was fascinating to talk about and really really fun to rewatch. so thank you so much <laughs> i i hope it makes up for uh brain scan last season <laughs> <laughs> brain scan was probably the most fun movie we've ever done <laughs> thanks for listening we really appreciate you the audience and we hope um we will just <laughs> ring a little bit of something out of this movie uh Thanks, guys, so much. I had so much fun. I really like talking about this movie with you guys, and um, I really appreciate your time. And we'll talk to you guys again. Love it. Yeah, my, my pleasure. Have a good night. Good night. We have the ships. We have the weapons. We need soldiers. Thank you for listening to our Starship Troopers episode. I hope you had as much fun as I did. And I hope you take a moment for any podcast that you love, whether or not that includes this one, and take a moment to go to iTunes to rate the podcast, review the podcast, spread the word about it, whatever it may be. It really means a lot to everyone making podcasts, because that's what really makes it a success. If you have a podcast or a podcast idea that you're trying to get off the ground, I would love if you would reach out to me. If you head to resonator.network or resonatornetwork.com, works also, I would love to connect with you and see how we can work together to get something up and running. My dream is to have a whole fleet of really interesting different podcasts that may have not ever had a chance to get made otherwise, so if that sounds appealing to you, please reach out. I'd love to hear from you. As we mentioned during the recording, the next episode you're going to hear is going to be about Hedwig and the Angry Inch. My partner Whitney and I will be talking about it, and I've got her here to kind of pregame with me a little bit and give you a taste. Hi. Hi. I want to talk to you about Hedwig and the Angry Inch. I want to talk about The Little Mermaid. Little <laughs> to be changing. We can we can do The Little Mermaid if you'd rather. Um, let's just do both.
Okay, in the same episode. Yeah. We can combine them. Ariel and the angry inch. Mm-hmm. An- Ariel and the angry fin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They both liked to sing. And they both they both like to sing and about they, their the str- struggles they have in their life. Yes, and they both like a boy pretty good. They both are pretty into a boy, mm-hmm. and um, are compelled to go through a bodily transformation. Oh my gosh! In order this is to going to be a perfect episode. Well, now I actually want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, you and I have a pretty good and long relationship with Hedwig. The first Christmas we were together, we uh, decided we were going to go to New York and see at the Belasco. Did we decide that? One of us decided <laughs> and surprised the other. It was a really good present. <laughs> we had a great trip and we saw, uh, as I mentioned in the episode that just finished, we saw Neil Patrick Harris one or two nights before opening night. Mm-hmm. Um, it was fantastic. It was really good. Yeah. No one loves it more than you in the world, maybe. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I do really, really love it, though. It's From a, the minute I saw it the first time and then immediately started rewatching <laughs> it, I definitely love it. Um, how old were you when you saw it? I think it came out in 2001. Do you see it in the theater? No, I did not see okay. it in the theater, so probably 2001, 2002. I, I doubt it came to my theater. So I was in my early 20s. Yeah. A really one-of-a-kind movie. I don't think I've ever seen a movie like it. It's uh, it's one I've gotten a new read on and saw, saw a new thing in every time I've seen it, and it's such a, I don't know, passion project? Mm-hmm. Passion project isn't right, because that's something you don't do for money. Mm-hmm. But it's such a personal well, project. Well, I think for a long time he played Hedwig for no money. I think he kind of went to nightclubs and was just did a character... Kind of her monologuing and yeah. just being curmudgeonly, and I mean, I think it's a character that's lived with him for a long time. And right, that's that's gonna be really fun to talk about too. Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay, so come back in two weeks, July first. Hooray! Yeah. Okay, give me a kiss. No. Okay. <laughs>